Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Today's episode is brought to you by Adventure Dice. Adventure Dice is an online dice shop based here in Vancouver, selling a variety of dice and other gaming accessories. Personally, I'm a big fan of their rolling trays and the Grounded Pixie Dice Set. Adventure Dice ships for free anywhere in Canada, and if you use the code DMV at checkout, you can get a 10% discount on your purchase. That's DMV for a nice discount on your new tabletop gear. Find the shop at adventuredice.ca and roll for adventure! Hey folks, just a heads up. The audio is a little bit weird in this one because Jesse's mic apparently wasn't recording properly, something that we're going to try and make sure doesn't happen in future recordings. We are still getting used to the new studio, so bear with us. You can still hear Jesse. He's picked up by the other mics. You might just have to be fiddling with your volume a little bit during the episode. Thanks. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're talking to you, Andrew Kaywood. How's it going, Andrew? Good. How are you guys doing? Good. It's rainy and i was kind of looking forward to it being a sunnier weekend but we but, live in vancouver but plus side it's not boiling in the studio yes <laughs> the last few times we've recorded it's been uh it, it was hot. yeah it was a thing to get through yeah we're on the third floor the third floor or the fourth floor of an apartment building and it's it's warm yeah <laughs> get warm. Uh, anyway andrew uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. I'm Andrew Kaywood of uh, Kaywood Publishing, a little RPG company here in Vancouver. And about three and a half years ago, we started making uh, fifth edition products and um, have made uh, the World of Mir, many DM handbooks and uh, adventures as well. And I run a local group here in Vancouver called West in the Wood as well. Um yeah, I took a huge break from uh, D&D, uh, playing the original versions, and then not playing until about four years ago. So what prompted you to start playing again? Um, really, it was uh, two things. Um, one was a book called uh, Of Dice and Men, okay. which I just happened to read on holiday. And I kind of thought to myself, why have I stopped playing this game? <laughs> why have I not thought about it for 30 years? And... Um, all I've been doing the last 30 years is being a storyteller. And it must be so much easier now to get groups together. Back in the day, it was so hard to get groups, especially if you're outside of any kind of big city. And I thought with the internet, it must be you know, so much easier. And as soon as I got to back to Vancouver, found a group immediately, <laughs> sat down at the table of this stranger's house, being the DM, uh, with this little tiny adventure at in beginnings. And uh, it was like I'd never stopped playing. That's, that's actually something that I you mentioned it and now I'm curious about it because yeah like with the internet it's a lot easier to find and especially like I think for people like myself who are probably a little bit shy about talking to people but like I can just throw a post out on Facebook or Twitter just be like I'm thinking of doing a thing with D&D and get a bunch of responses whereas exactly. like I'm, there's no way I would have been able to ask people in elementary school like hey, do you like this really nerdy thing? Do you want to play a game? Well, especially where we would have been. Well, I 
were you in private school in elementary yep. school? Because I wasn't, but you were in a Catholic private school. So, and like as we've discussed in previous episodes, there was still uh, lingering elements of the satanic panic in some people's parents when it came to D and D. Yeah, but yeah, my thought just disappeared on me there. Um, so, I mean, like, yeah, the the internet has made it easier to talk about and you know start gaming groups which is great and what was it like when you were younger and first starting playing pre-internet like how was finding a group how did that work for you well originally i was asked by i'd actually just moved to canada i'd only been here maybe it's hard to remember exactly when i started i'm pretty sure it was around 79 or 80 so i just moved here um and uh there are just a bunch of kids at school asked me, you know, if I'd be interested, I had no idea what the game was. And, um, as soon as we started playing, I was like, this is the, this is the greatest thing ever. And we had a great, um, kind of routine where we'd play for an hour or two. We'd go outside, play football. This guy had this huge yard and then, uh, come back inside play for another hour or two, go back outside, play football. And we did that like all weekend long. And this was back in the original, basic adventures and then the beginnings of AD and D. Um, so yeah, those are really good, really good times, good memories. I think, uh, stranger things does a really good job of kind of capturing some of that essence of what it was like. It's not exactly like they have it in the show, but it does a pretty good job of that kind of, you know, that we didn't have much, right. There weren't fancy map tiles and 3d terrain and, you know, you're lucky if you could like cobble together a few dice and the original dice you had to like draw in with a crayon, a crayon that was probably the worst made crayon in the universe because you got halfway through and the ha- halfway through, you know, sort of inscribing it and the crayon already disintegrated. Um, you were lucky like to find like, I mean, even photocopying something. Good luck. Like maybe somebody's dad had access to a photocopier and they would, you know, secretly run off a bunch of character sheets for you but um you know it was really really basic it was just pure you know the, i mean it was what the game really is which is just pure storytelling you know yeah it's a far cry from today where like just recently matt mercer ran a game for like stephen colbert and a bunch of other famous people like it's not my understanding was like back then it was yeah, it was really just something that spread just through word of mouth or somebody saw a book and picked it up and thought, oh, this is cool and, you know, decided to run a game. Whereas now, like, if you don't know what D&D is, you don't spend any time online. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or watching TV. Yeah. Because it's been in, yeah, it's been in Stranger Things. It's been in Community. Yeah. Um, Big Bang Theory. Big Bang Theory. There's yeah, a bunch of shows have had, if not episodes dedicated to it, it's a running well joke or theme throughout the series yeah and like i mean it's always hard for me to gauge those things because i've always been into comic books and board games and stuff like that so i've like since before i was an adult i've already i've always been interacting with D, but it's it is so much bigger now and easier to find and it's great um also talking about your like weekends where you're spending the whole time playing D mm-hmm. that's making me nostalgic for my like early 20s late yeah. teens when we actually had the time to yeah. do that kind of stuff like, exactly when you could do it yeah yeah i remember when i was in in high school it wasn't D D. it was it was warhammer 40k but i remember spending like an entire day over at a friend's house playing and looking back now it's like oh i 
wish I had nothing to do <laughs> that I didn't have commitments or people wanting to do things and things that needed to get done. So I could just be like, yeah, this entire weekend, I'm just going to play D and D or Warhammer or read comics. John, mm -hmm. we should, we should figure out a weekend. <laughs> At least an entire day where we can just hang it, you know, find four people be like, yeah, no, I book it. We'll book it a month in advance. One of us will DM and we'll play. Um, Cause it's, it's really something playing for like a day or two uh, straight. It's also exhausting, especially yeah. as an adult. But you know, if you you know, if we make responsible choices in what we eat and stuff, we might be okay. <laughs> um, so tell us more about the publishing of what the the stuff that you publish, sure, and all that kind of stuff. I see you've you've brought a a book here that our audience can't see. Let's start with that. Sure. Yeah. So something new we did recently was we teamed with this um, uh, comic book uh, writer. Um, comic artist uh, Domenico Nizidi out of Italy, actually originally from Canada, but he spent most of his life there. And he has a web um, comic about RPGs, really based on his experience with D&D. &D. Um, he's been playing for quite a while. And um, most of the comics that he does aren't actually about the game. And a, little, a few of them are about the characters, but most of them are about the dynamics at the table. And I think he's quite insightful. I don't think there's a lot of... There's not that many people doing RPG comics. or, But um, there are not many people, I think, who have the kind of insight that he does to the dynamics, the group dynamics at the table. And uh, he actually came to us. He'd seen some of the books that we did and said, would you like to um, publish a book of mine? And we said, sure. Like, we love his work. And um, so that just recently... Something recently we did. Um, and then we've done adventures... Um, our world of Mir, which is really how it all started. I'd started playing again just in the fifth uh, edition playtest. And the new group that I had, people were like, you should publish this world. This is really interesting, unique. And I thought, oh, okay, I'll keep, I've kept all the notes and everything. So I did that. Um, and then right after I did that, the new license, the new open gaming license came out. And then right after that happened, uh, the, the DMs Guild started. So I realized a lot of the content and tables and things I had already made, I could use for products in the DMs Guild as well. And then it's just kept snowballing. So now we have over 35 fifth edition products. And the main thing we focused on is DM handbooks. So monster books like Monsters of Feyland, uh, our new book, Monsters of the Underworld, and then um, books for a lot of books where... They're the kind of resources I'd want to have at the table if I'm the DM to make my, my game easier. Um, and our motto is inspiring and practical products because I think there's a lot of good ideas, but maybe they're not practical at the table. For example, as a DM, for me, I don't want to have too much behind that screen. It's already full. It's already full. I don't need more cards and uh, towers and, you know, I want less stuff. I don't want more. But a book that I can put off to the side that rest with the other books that I can quickly grab or use when I'm planning. To me, that's more practical. So that's the kind of thing we've given people like lots of tables to like for inns and stores, like, so you can just open the book, you know, you're the players have arrived in a, in a, a town and they're looking for the, an inn or the weapon store. And you open up the book and here's the, all the products of the store, all their prices, a little blurb about who works there, what it's like, that kind of thing. So really to make DMs game masters' lives easier. So one one thing that I'm curious about because you're talking about um, putting out, I guess, source books for your own 
setting mm-hmm. is because it's something that after I talked about uh, on a previous episode, the campaign that I ran, somebody who's part of the network said, hey, you should write some of that up and put it on DMs Guild or something. Yeah. How do you find the, I guess, the, the market for that kind of stuff? Because I think before DMs Guild, like if you could manage to get it published somehow, even if it was just in your you know friendly local gaming store, as yeah. a, almost as like a Zine kind of thing, like it might have more reach but now it's kind of like the steam problem of there's this massive library now of things of dm's products of one shots of campaigns of campaign settings how do you find getting your stuff out there like how what kind of hurdles have you had to overcome yeah that's a really good point that's what that's what we had in the beginning when um you know, we actually, the first Kickstarter we ran didn't work. Now we've had, I think this will be the fifth in a row now that has been funded. But the first one, we had no footprint. We had no money. <laughs> um, it's it's hard, but I, there's a lot of, th- and first of all, I think if, you, if you're doing good work, just keep doing good work. And that's the best you can do. And hopefully it gets rewarded. So yeah. that, that's something I kind of have a faith in that. Um, and then secondly, sometimes it's just, it's literally getting person by person. Like it's, the the difficult part, like you say, is there, the internet gives you set everything is there. It's such a full market now. There's so much competition. The positive part is you can talk to every individual person if you want to. If you want to go on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook to a certain degree, um, there's ways to interact. Sometimes sometimes we're finding a follower, a customer one at a time. You know, literally. So a lot of networking. Um, and then I think, you know, art has always been such a huge uh, part of the game and there's a reason why, right? And so at the very beginning, we spent what little money we had on three actually paintings by a guy in Vancouver. And those were the first images that were very distinct and that people knew when they saw that art, okay, that's those guys. So I would really, and then, you know, because you're doing it from the ground up, like we do it too, it, you know, it really helps to have other people who are starting out if you can find those people and kind of um, you want to do as much as you can in-house. Um, and then as you grow, then you can start to expand. And, you know, I found an artist in Singapore and then I found one in uh, Wisconsin and then one in Toronto. And then now the main guy we work with is in California. Um, and then layout, like a guy in my group has helped with layout. And now I found another guy in the States. So it's kind of building step by step. Um and trying to, like you say, trying to find something unique to stand out from that big uh, crowd. Um, DM's Guild is more, you have to do Forgotten Realms pretty much or Ravenloft um, as far as the settings or something totally that can go anywhere. So if you want to do your own world, uh, you've got to do like your own site or go to drive through. And um, yeah, a fair bit of competition, but I think that just encourage you to, encourages creativity, right? Find something, find something different, find something, and then fi- and find great art. And when it comes to getting ready to put something out, like how much of your time would you say you spend doing like playtesting and like making sure that this, like, for example, um, I backed uh, Matthew Colville's uh, Strongholds and Followers. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things he says in there is like, this has been playtested. We know that it breaks the game a little bit, but mm-hmm. that's, that's intended. And I've seen, I've bought a 
too many things on drive through RPG. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Looking for sometimes DM um, tools like the, the things that you were saying, mm-hmm. or just looking for one shots or stuff like that. And sometimes, like immediately after buying it and downloading it and taking a look, it's like, oh, this is this is not going to work. This is broken. Mm-hmm. Like I'm glad I only spent two or three bucks on this. Mm-hmm. Um, how? What kind of process do you have for making sure that when you put something out, you're confident that people are going to like it and it's going to hopefully work? I mean, you can't ensure that it's going to work for everybody's game. But for right. most people, like, you can at least – there's, like, play testing and stuff like that that you can do. What kind of process do you have there? Well, we luckily, we play almost every week, my this weekly group. And, um, you know, and I, I wouldn't have done anything if it wasn't for those guys. Like, because every week we're getting a chance to practice – so I think it depends on what element, um, testing out whether the world makes sense and the setting, that kind of stuff. I think that takes a longer time and you can do that in the weekly group, figuring out, you know, I've definitely pulled things out and put things in to make it work better. I think monsters, I don't think it's that difficult because um, you have so many examples to use from Wizards and from other companies. I think Wizards still, they have... The difficult thing with uh, monsters, the only thing I think is that they're the only ones who have the formula. So there's a there's a guide in the DMG of how to make them, but the specific formula to get the exact challenge rating only Wizards has. But I think you can get close enough, and I think a lot of it is less is more. People put too much stuff and they go too far away from the mechanics. That's how it breaks. So I think monsters. I don't think it's too hard, but I definitely, you know, see if those work. If you know, if something almost wipes out a high-level party of mine, like recently, I know, okay, I'm going to bump that CR up. It's it's not what I thought it was. Mm-hmm. I think the hardest thing, in my opinion, are, are classes. And um, yeah. what I've seen, I've, I don't know if I've ever seen a balanced class by someone other than Wizards. And we've stayed away from that because I think, I don't think they're that, I think, I think you have to be really creative to find a new good class. <laughs> Subclasses even as well. There's so many options out there now. Um, I think that's the hardest one to 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 make sure that it's not broken. Yeah, and I think like what you're saying about the with the monsters is we t- talked to somebody recently about designing monsters, and he's talking about how like there was like a CR one half or one quarter like a monster meant for first level level parties that if you designed it from the ground up it would have way too many hit points and so you have to like take a look at what wizards did and just go okay like with all of these things i'm just gonna like reduce its hit points by a bunch but maybe give it like it can hide as a bonus action i think i don't know if it was goblins or not but you know stuff like that and uh i think you're right though about the classes yeah I, i think also the um the less is more as far as monster design goes. I know I've made a couple of custom monsters or used ones from other third-party books where it's like, well, they have all these abilities, and realistically, I'm going to use two of them <laughs> because, you know, they only last three rounds in the fight or whatever, unless they're, like, the end boss, or, you know, my players shut them down, or, you know, what have you. And the thing with monsters is that even if there are only one or two abilities, you have to make sure that they're easy to understand because i ran into this problem when i used a roper against uh my party once where i i quickly like sped read through the the description of its of its uh what happens when it grapples somebody and i didn't quite it didn't like 
fall into place in my brain that it has like six tentacles and they all like if they hit it's a grapple and it just as i like basically like as i was playing through this fight every time it came back like while the players were doing their thing i'd like i'd read another sentence or two of the roper of its ability and be like oh no i have done the wrong thing here i uh i made a custom monster recently and its kind of special ability was to knock people prone before attacking and um just Every, every single player got knocked prone every single time. And it ended up not being too bad for them because it didn't do a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. But it was just one of those things where I'm like, I need, a, I need a fiddle with this. And then on top of that, keep in mind what classes I have in my party. You know, My fighter with lots of strength and int but no dexterity is always going to fall over even if I can never hit his AC. Yeah, it kind of reminds me in a way of, you know, it's a microcosm of doing a setting because I think the setting is true too. Settings usually people put too much stuff and it's there's not enough room for the DM because realistically you're going to do your own thing and I think the settings need to have more space in them for the DMs to kind of really get a good handle on them and to do their own thing. Same with monsters, you know, you're telling it's telling a, a little story. Each monster is telling a little story, I think, and you want that story to be clear. If it gets too convoluted and you know, the abilities are all over the place, you know, like it can poison and it can paralyze, but it's like immune to psychic damage or something like it's got to be a consistent, coherent kind of story, each monster. And it's got to have a its thing, you know, not and not too many, not too much of that. It's got to have it's got to be um, it's got to stand out. You know, I see a few times where people have made I'm like, that's the exact same monster. I think it's different if you're making like the giant version of it or like the vampire version of it or something. But um, if you make the exact same monster, then it's, you know. Yeah. And what you were just saying about like leaving room for the DM, I think that that really definitely applies for setting because I was just thinking about it. Like I've seen a couple of, of setting guides where even if it was just a single city, like they would have every single house like they could tell you what was in there and thinking about how a dm would want to use something like even something from the forgotten realms like if uh Baldur's gate is a city in forgotten realms right yeah Yeah. like if you have if wizards puts out some map for Baldur's gate they're not going to tell you what's in every single house because dms are at the end of the day want to make something theirs and so you want to leave room you know on your map or in your story for the DM to go, and this is my special NPC that I use in every campaign because he always works well. Yeah. So that's, I think, an interesting part or thing for beginners, too. Like, uh, say I'm a new DM, I pick up Dragon Heist for the first time and I want to run it. It's not useful to me to have everything that's in every house. That's too much information. Mm-hmm. It's overwhelming, right? Like, just knowing what's relevant to whatever the adventure is is more helpful. Um, and I think it comes down to setting stuff as well. Like having that space to flex around a little bit mm-hmm. is really good. And um, I was recently talking to Anna Bromberger, who we had on our fifth episode, um, about she's about to start running a game in Exalted, and she's uh, using this old setting when she's customizing. And she was saying that she keeps on getting in conversations with people who play the game and are like, oh, well, that setting is no good. It, it doesn't have a key problem. There's mm-hmm. no big mm-hmm. overarching mm-hmm. problem. And she's, both her and my response to that is, well, that's 
not actually true. It not having a specific problem means you could make up whatever you want. Um, and, you know, having, like, looking at the details of this setting, you can play around with it and, like, there are different factions. There's where our problem is. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, in two seconds, right? It's, I think people sometimes forget um, that you don't always need those details necessarily, especially if somebody's going to take it and run their own adventure in it. Yeah. To me, it's kind of gimmicky if you make a setting just because it like it's just the vampire setting. Like Ravenloft for me is a cool adventure, but a whole setting yeah. uh, to me, it, it kind of gets it's it doesn't have enough to it. W- one of the reasons I love Greyhawk to me, it it just has more space and it's also more organic. Uh, it just seems like and there's yeah, it just seems like there's a lot more um, natural reasons for things happening. Whereas I don't know the Forgotten Realms as well. I kind of have learned about it and now writing, we've even written some adventures about it. But to me, it's a place where everything's being thrown in. You know, you can have everything. You can have jungles and you can have this and you can have that. And it, it's, everything's getting jammed into one one world. And um, yeah, again, I, I really like Greyhawk. That's what inspired our world of Mirror where it's, you want to try to give more space for the DM and have a world where it's not so not so about a, a special gimmick or, you know... Um, Just everything. Everything is in this. It's an actual functioning world with a lot of detail, but not too much structure that a DM can't go in there and put their own adventure in or just take a, one of the, you know, uh, core adventures and, and you can put it in here, no problem, you know. I feel similarly about the Nancy Prevail setting that they had for fourth edition. Like mm-hmm. it was specifically not the Forgotten Realms, and there was only like a dozen gods, and instead of like three hundred or whatever is in the Forgotten Realms, and it's it's in its simplicity, it makes it very easy to set up an adventure. You can be like, oh yeah, Nancy Prevail points of light setting, so it's like points of civilization, and then everything else is dangerous. Okay, a million adventure ideas, right? Yeah. One of the things that I'm curious about to go back to creating content was you're talking about creating like tools for the DM. And I guess I'm curious, like how much of that is like what you said, like, okay, here's a, you know, 20 page book of different stores Mm -hmm. versus here's a bunch of tables. Cause that's one of the things I think I see the most when I search for like DM stuff on drive through RPG specifically is Mm -hmm. like, here's a hundred tables for, generating things whether it's inns or stores or adventure hooks or bad guys or like you can find five pdfs to generate anything (laughs) and when you're thinking of making something like for a dm to use when they're planning a campaign (laughs) what kind of content are you trying to create um well it's ranged at the very beginning um, it was really basic building blocks like tables for extra effects, like if you get a crit or a crit miss. So we just we actually in our group we have a, we have a massive table for a D one twenty we use. So we knew not many people are going to have the D one twenty whether they don't want to pay for it or it's they're not going to find it. Uh, uh, so we made a D twenty version of that. Um, and in that first book, I put some general tips like. For me, I have a lot of people, actually, the biggest question I have people ask me is not about the game uh, itself. It's about groups, how to run the group. So I had some tips about how to run groups. Um, And then a lot of times, I think what is missing in some of the core books, although they've tried to add it as they've gone along, 
are the things between adventures. Uh, because sometimes that, as we said in one of our books, is the real adventure. Sometimes that's where the coolest stuff happens. So tables, examples for like, what are you going to encounter on the road? Um, and then like you've talked about, we had inns, uh, taverns, uh, stores. And then we had one book specifically that was just called Between Adventures Handbook or Between uh, Dungeons Handbook. So that has everything like um, all the different kinds of vehicles you've had, you've had, you could have uh, mounts where they only have a few mounts in the player's handbook. We added, you know, like um, what, what would happen if you're riding a dragon? You know, how much could it carry? How much could it cost if someone could possibly procure a blue dragon? Or if you're riding a warg, how much could it carry? How fat, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So put it all in one place. So basically with that, that kind of book, those kind of books I use like every single week. And I use them for planning, but that's also a book that I would have nearby. Um, you know, if I felt like I need another encounter that I don't have already written out, just grab one of those books, look really quickly. There's tables in there for carousing, probably the most rolled table in my group. <laughs> uh, and we've expanded those. We had tables for insults and compliments. Um, all those little kind of things that add depth to the game. And uh, you, again, I... You know, I really do believe in that less is more, but it's it, it does add that just a bit of that flavor that can be useful. Um, we had we have tables of events that could happen, not just encounters. So things like um, you know the tables one to a hundred, and one is like an earthquake, and um, maybe a uh, hundred is the city gets locked down, and they're searching for someone. The, the royalty is searching for someone. Or a halfling runs across a tavern and hugs you. Uh, just these little things that can add, like a cook storms out of the kitchen yelling about, you know, his food is fine. And maybe he mistakes the characters. Maybe it's not even them who complain. Maybe it's the table next to them. But he, he comes and insults the characters. So all those little things to just add a little bit of depth to the game um, and to help. It really helps planning, but it can be something you can use on the go too. Really like the idea of the insults and compliment table because that's something that um, I don't think is an obvious thing, but it's helpful because you know if you're playing a bard and maybe you personally aren't the most charming person, but you're th trying to think of what to say without like upsetting the char the character you're interacting with, having something like that is handy. Just even if you're not rolling on it and just kind of like reading through it, be like, oh yeah, I say something along the lines of this. Oh for sure, and it adds so much to role playing. Like I, you know, sometimes they'll come back to me. Because uh, some of those tables, I just, I can sit, that's the kind of thing I'm just lucky. I can just sit down and they, I, I can just come up with them over and over. And one of them was uh, a noble walks up to you and says, uh, you look like you, you need some help with your wardrobe and flips a gold coin. <laughs> <laughs> that, that one I've used more than a few times and it never gets old. Because, you know, there'll be, you know, inevitably there'll be a player in the group who's like, What? What? You know, and that could start anything from like a fight or just, a, you know, an argument or, you know, there's so many things that could happen. Or that character dedicating themselves to ruin, ruining that noble. <laughs> For sure. Like I even actually now I remember a time where the party was probably 12th level and this um, she was an eldritch knight was kind of separated from the rest of the group. They were going into a tavern and these I had these... Um, uh, berserkers who are always a lot tougher than you think they are. There was a group of them that insulted her because uh, she was an elf 
And she left the rest of the party and went over to deal with them. And it was just one of those cases of rolling really badly. And she got killed. And the rest of the party couldn't get back to her. And actually the chaotic neutral sorcerer, who could have been a big help, he, his big thing at that time was flipping a yes-no dice to see whether or not he was going to help someone in the party. <laughs> so he just stayed in and kept drinking in the, in the tavern while the fight was going on outside. Um, so yeah, those little things can end up being huge, you know. I think one of the things that I like about tables is that I find them most useful when I'm like planning, whether it's a For session sure. or a whole campaign, because the thing is they're so versatile. Like you can use them to just look at them and be like, oh, that's a cool idea. And it will spark something in your head. And now you've got suddenly a whole campaign flowing out of your pen. But they can also be super useful when you just you don't know what you want to do. Like there's been a couple of times when a um, there's some rules in the DMG on how to uh, roll to create a dungeon where like you roll and it'll say like, okay, put this room, like a room that's five by eight. Uh, and if you roll and okay, it's got three doors and one of them like on each wall and, and you can just roll up an entire dungeon. Sometimes, I mean, it's almost more fun when it creates a nonsensical dungeon because now you're in a non-Euclidean space and things don't work properly. But um I like how they can be used to like, you can either just see it and you suddenly got inspiration or if you don't know, like something that I've done a couple of times actually is when I didn't know what I wanted to do because I had too many ideas, I just put them down in a list and roll and be like, okay, that one, cool. The dice made the decision for me. <laughs> and that I, I found is useful too, especially when the dice comes to a decision that you're like, no, no, it's not going to be that. Oh wait, no, I know, I know what it is. It's going to be this different thing. Um, yeah, for sure. I know there's been a lot of discussion I've seen online recently about people getting into camps about whether DM should fudge at all, fudge their dice rolls. And to me, the story is in charge. So if I have to do, like, I actually roll everything in the open except for saving throws, partly because I just because I'm older than I look and I don't want to be getting up all the time <laughs> over my DM screen and leaning and getting up and down a thousand times. But having the saving throws, I definitely sometimes change those. And I definitely sometimes change hit points for monsters because to me, the story's in charge. If it's not working, if some if battle's going on too long or it's something's just not right with the story, I want the story to lead. So same thing with you. If I'm planning and I roll on a chart or even when we're in the game and I roll on, they roll on the carousing chart and they get to something where I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. And I look down, I take something else and it can totally change the direction you're going. It's a topic that I have, I haven't, I such varying feelings. Cause I remember listening to a podcast like five or six years ago, I think it was fear the boot. And one of the hosts on there was talking about how, when he plays D&D, and I think this was third edition, he didn't track hit points at all. Like, it was entirely narrative-based. Mm -hmm. When he felt that, okay, there's been enough rounds and you guys have done enough damage, the next hit will kill the monster. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing that and just being like, that is offends me on such a like <laughs> deep core level. But the more I think about it, it's like, I try not to fudge things because... Mm -hmm. um, even though I roll behind the screen, but like, yeah, there's been times where I'll roll something and be like, if I do that, this character is dead. Yeah. Like I have rolled too much damage or it's another hit when they are down on the ground. And sometimes I lean more towards like the Matt Colville, like 
if the ogre gets you prone, he's just going to stomp on you until you're jelly. And then there's the like, well, this is supposed to be like, uh, you know, the climax of this campaign. And I don't want this character to die because they tripped. Like, it's really a moment by moment thing for me. But yeah, it's it's one of those. I think it's one of those topics that every DM has. Some some people are very opinionated in a very shitty way. Like <laughs> um, so like. I, I will fudge stuff if I think it is if I think a fight is boring because mm-hmm. one side or the other has managed to just get the other side in a state where they can't do anything mm-hmm. interesting, um, or if like if something is supposed to be a climactic battle and maybe the end boss gets uh, knocked prone and then uh, like somebody sits on them and I just can't make the save like mm-hmm. yeah some no sometimes that boss needs to make the save because this is the end boss and like. I, like you, the players are gonna feel cheated if they just curb stop it, unless they've like gone out of their way to make sure they're extra powerful beforehand, right? Um, it's it, but it is a moment by moment thing, and I, I do think it's something that like DMs shouldn't all, and again, it depends on the group actually, but shouldn't always do when they don't need to. Like if you're just fighting some skeletons, yeah. Well, it's one of those things where like one of the things I heard, and I've. I've kind of always wanted to do this, but I've never felt like it was the right moment where I know based on how many monsters are left and the characters that once they've killed X monsters, it doesn't matter what the character's health is at, they're going to win, you know, or they've killed the leader of this group of, you know, 10 um, gang members. And these gang members are all going to be a pushover, but it's going to take three more rounds just because of dice rolling and all of that stuff and i want to get on to the rest of the the rest of the story like okay Mm -hmm. you've killed the the gang leader go collect your bounty and oh no something else has happened Mm -hmm. but i have never felt right like i've never felt like it's been the right time to say like and you guys just wipe the floor with the rest of them because yeah because i i know that there i have at least so far with all the players that i've had the rolling and the combat and all of that stuff is where they find the most fun but it's weird when it's like that you have like four players and two of them are really into combat and two of them kind of just check out during combat. Yeah. It's uh, I'm fortunate right now that my game group is more interested in the role play side of things. So if I get into a situation like that where they're like, you beat the main baddie, there's a couple of things. I just, I'll look at them depending how the fight's going to, but I'll look at them and be like, how do you deal with the last year? How, tell me how you mop them up. <laughs> because like, it, I think it, importantly gives them a chance to feel awesome and also it like you know i i have three hours per session like i can't mm-hmm. if i can save 20 minutes to so mm-hmm. i can do some rp down the road i would much rather do that and i think a lot of the times my players would as well mm-hmm. i like that actually i like that idea of giving the players if you right at the very end i would say for me though it's 90 percent i'm by the rules for sure and for me the game is the rules and the system and the dice um, and I want that to be the main part, but I but I want the story to ultimately still have that ten percent to make sure the story's on track. As far as, like you said, making sense, you know, you why why have another half an hour of a fight that's done, um, or have like you said a, a boss who's going to go down <laughs> because of one horrible save at the beginning, uh, where they should have made it. Like maybe they have legendary resistance and they use it. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, there's very few things I change. We just have extra effects for crits and crit misses in our group. 
and we i have no no evil characters it's one of my ways i like to sort of make sure the tone is uh the kind of game that i want to have and then we there's three feats we don't use because mm. i feel those feats kind of change the game too much which, and they which are they uh they're lucky because I feel that's the halfling's realm and I kind of feel it's taking away or a magic item's power. Yeah. I think they're um, alert because to me that kind of takes away some of the stuff that the barbarian can do and it just changes the game, especially as players get like sort of 10th level and higher and then observant. Mm-hmm. Again, it kind of, they're all, they're all feats that to me, they take away things that are already in the game specialties for certain races or classes that I would rather give for them. And I would rather keep things more spontaneous. Like I want the party to be surprised sometimes where some of those feats, the party's never going to be surprised. And we did try the lucky feat at the beginning, but um, yeah, I didn't find it worked. It kind of took something away from the story. I always found that the lucky one is kind of, weird because it's like as written it's you can re-roll before you know the outcome of the roll and mm-hmm. it's and it's so weird because you like usually when you're playing you get into this um into this rhythm of like they roll they tell you what they got and immediately you as the dm are like okay cool you hit and like you unless the player is like because i think it's meant for like they rolled a two and they're like lucky like they know right away they want to use it yeah but it's so weird when it's like they rolled a 10 and it's like oh does that hit i don't know if i want to use lucky or not like it it feels like it's one of those things that can kind of mess up the flow of yeah. the session yeah to me it kind of breaks it yeah. like to me evil players break the game too because the whole game is based on the party being together the whole encounter system is based on the party being together you can't have two player you can have party separated for a little bit but it's not going to go well against the main fights and uh yeah it just and you know if you have a party like that and i had i did do that when i played ad and d when i was a kid we had evil parties sometimes or evil characters and if a party you know if a person is going to do anything uh, which an evil character could then they're not necessarily there's no they're not necessarily going to stay with that group or back that group up I think I like um, I think Matt Colville did a whole video on on playing evil characters and I, I agree with him pretty much with all the stuff that he said but I think I think one of the few times where evil parties work is when when either like it's something that you've decided as a group that the, everybody decided we're all going to play evil characters who are out to accomplish x mm-hmm. or something that I really want to do is the suicide squad thing where it's mm-hmm. like you have all been plucked out of prison and magical collars have been slapped on you and you've got a retainer that's got the button that'll cut your heads off if you do do too much bad stuff mm-hmm. so that there's a way to at least try and steer them away from just becoming a murder hobo party. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it's... I think like a, whether or not to play evil characters or allow feats, like yeah, I think it, it's one of those things that, again, it comes just down to communication like letting your players know during that session zero like here's the rules whether you've got mm-hmm. house rules limitations on feats or character classes or whatever um and i think it's the thing that it, whenever i see somebody online talking about like oh no my campaign has fallen apart it's like did you have a session zero no well there you go yeah did, did you let the least trust 
the the person you trust the least to play fair with the other people play an evil character maybe that was a mistake um i i generally also don't allow evil characters i have played in evil campaigns and evil games and one shots that have worked really well but again there's a lot of like you need a lot of structure going into it beforehand to mm-hmm. kind of corral players because like occasionally you have somebody who goes through well this is the logical conclusion that this evil character comes to and now the rest of the party is like well we have to abandon this character because he's done something too horrible and like even if we're friends or he's a loved one or whatever like mm-hmm. you know he just murdered these these school children yeah yeah uh for their lunch money like, yeah i think you know sean makes a really good point about you have to Unless you want a, a game that's totally off the rails, and every group, every table is different. If people want to play that game, that's fine. But uh, most people don't, don't want a, a group like that because the storytelling is gone, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, and it's really important to have those house rules, whether it's about the game, but also about what kind of tone you want in the game. What I've found is in the tone of that group and the rules and behavior that you want of your players, that if you do have an evil campaign, that is very, becomes very difficult. People, for some reason, think, you know, they, they really take on their characters and um, you don't have as clear boundaries from what I've seen. But I think you're right. And that's one of the first things that I'll tell DMs who are having a hard time with their group and steering them. And just in terms of keeping things, um, keeping the story on track, not railroading them, but keeping the story on track, is that uh, it's OK to have house rules. You get, it's OK to have boundaries what works for you as a DM and then find out what works for your players. Uh, it probably took us, you know, ours have changed over time, but probably the first three or four months of our group that's been playing for four and a half years, we probably spent three or four months kind of fine tuning exactly what that was going to be. Um, and, and, and every table is different. And I think one of the things, and it's, it's the hardest thing to do because as, as DMs, we get invested I think sometimes we're we're invested right off the bat in the story because we've spent hours or days or just way too much time in general pointing at myself, uh, like designing this story and the campaign and making maps and figuring out what the bad guys are and their motivations and all of this stuff. And you've just you've created a lot of content that you want your players to experience. And when when you feel like things are going off the rail, it's. I think it's the hardest thing to do to like stop yourself from going, Oh, I need to get them back on track and figure out why are things going off, off the rails? Like, are they going off the rails because they've had like two serious sessions in a row and they just want to have some fun or like, have you talked to your players and they're just not as in, in interested in that section of the story and they just want to move on to like the next chapter or whatever it mm-hmm. is. And cause I think that it's, it always comes back to communication and like knowing that and being able to have your players tell you honestly that, you know, yeah, this section of the story, I'm not that interested in, but I know that these other two players really are. So I'm going to go along with it, but I'd really like it if we could get to, I don't know, that gladiator thing you told me was happening in that city, two towns over, mm-hmm. like keeping things like lines of communication open so that, you know, Okay, yeah, this thing that I was really invested in because it was really hard for me to figure out how to make all this plot stuff work. Okay, we just have to get through it like in a session or half a session so that the players are having fun again because 
it's about everybody at the table having fun and sometimes the stuff that we're most interested in isn't necessarily what the players are interested in i just want to bring it back to the house rule thing quickly because i think that's really interesting and i think uh, sometimes it's the thing that some players have a hard time understanding is that those house rules are not only for the GM's benefit. Like, I mean, a lot of my house rules are very obviously for my player's benefit. Like, I've changed the ways crits work so they're more satisfying. I've also made it so, like, a random goblin just can't start the whole thing because um, it's not interesting to them. But, like, a boss monster might hit twice as hard as they would have with a crit or something along those lines. I'm curious, what is your house rule for crits? Um, oh, so I, I run with the 4th edition version of Critical Hits, which is you get your full first dice of damage, and then you roll a second additional dice and add it to that, as opposed to the, uh, you roll twice the amount of dice. I think that's, hmm. it's been so long since I've played, because we're in between campaigns, but I think that's pretty much what I did, where, yeah, if you if your weapon does 2d8 plus 2, you get, like, what is it? 18 points of damage plus I can't remember if it was, yeah so that it like critical hits feel impactful like you did a good really good hit yeah. do good damage because because I found I think the few because I did the beginner box campaign and with rules as written crits it's like yeah you roll two more dice but you could still roll and only get four points of damage yeah. and like I, I started playing more or less with fourth edition and so that's what i was useful to, or used to and then we moved into playing fifth i was like this is uh so critical hits mean nothing <laughs> um and uh, like i i think a critical hit should be a big splashy amount of damage um but alternatively partially because i have that rule is why like a random goblin or a skeleton or like random encounter i don't let them score critical They'll, they'll, you know, they'll get a 20 and they'll get that. They'll auto-hit, but I'm not going to give them that extra damage because, you know, it's just a side encounter. And unless it's something I think could make for interesting uh, an interesting addition to the story, like, a goblin doesn't need to roll max damage on a bow attack against my first level hmm. party. They're fine. That's interesting. I, I totally see where you're coming from with that. Oh, yeah. And <clears throat> for me, I like the random of his, randomness of it and the danger that i have in the world oh, yeah. so my players know they have to bring a backup character and i'm not i'm definitely not a dm who's out against my players usually if my monsters hit i'm or especially if somebody gets killed i'm not super happy about it to me it's something that happened in the story it's not something i did <laughs> and i'm I, I want the players to have a good time and i want their characters to survive but i also want to make it super challenging um so you know yeah, but I do. I, at the same time, I totally know where you're coming from, where some of it is not. It's not as realistic that a a goblin or a skeleton would cut down a warrior like that. Like we had a, I think we had a fourth level ranger. Yeah, he got. He again. It's usually when players get away from the rest of the party, right? So he went down into a basement. The rest of the party was still on the main floor, and there were two or three skeletons on this staircase. And he just, he rolled he, a critical miss and they rolled crits and he's dead. Yeah. He was already hurt from something else that had happened upstairs. And um, that was actually the first death we had ever in our campaign when we started playing fifth edition. Um, and then recently we had a character second, no, third level killed by a scarecrow. 
because they were paralyzed and they were down. I think they were also on the ground, maybe. So the next hit was an auto hit, an auto crit. Yeah, because they're helpless. Yeah. Yeah, it was an auto crit, and the and she died. Yeah. Third level, and I almost like I I almost never would have, I would do whatever I could to stop a first or second level character dying because it's just too early in the story. But this time I was like, ah, third level, you're on your own. <laughs> like. I, I do want to be clear that if I was playing with a different group, like mm-hmm. this this these house rules are customized for this group I'm playing with. If I was with a group of players, like if I was running for Sean and some of our friends who've been playing for longer and mm-hmm. are like used to that kind of game, oh yeah, like smaller monsters would fit. That would be part of it. But like uh, the group I'm playing with are, they do enjoy combat, but they're more interested in story. Mm-hmm. And like, I don't feel from a story perspective for the type of game I'm running with them that like a goblin or a skeleton critic and potentially killing a character is actually that interesting mm-hmm. i think it's probably a good time to wrap up but i think the i think before we get to the final question i just what's the worst or weirdest character death that you've had in any one of your campaigns because for me it was um a player had gotten uh grappled by i think it was a a griffin or something like they were stuck in like they were unconscious and it like had picked them up in its mouth and it was getting ready to fly away and another character decided they were going to shoot uh arrows to try and get the griffin to drop the character and i said well you're facing head on to the griffin there's a chance you might hit them so i made them roll like a percentile die it was a small chance that they would hit the character but two times in a row, they hit the character, and then the character failed their their final death saving throw. It's just like, well, <laughs> I mean that happens. Yeah. Um, so yeah, our our final question for you is: if uh, you could go back in time to the first time you were DMing anything, what's a piece of advice you give yourself? The first time I was DMing anything, I would say. Probably the first thing I tell people these days, other than having house rules, is that um, just be yourself. That people have this idea, especially now with streaming games, that there's sort of a the role of the DM, and I need to be the role of the storyteller. Where in my opinion, the best storytellers are people who are just themselves, and they do what they do best, and they focus on their strengths. And I think uh, that's the best kind of storyteller. Just do your thing. like Focus on what you want to do. Of course, you're going to work with your group to a certain extent of what people like. Like you said, your group, um, not, you know, being more into role play. But I'd say uh, just do your thing and not worry about what other people think as far as the way you should DM. Or like if you're not into doing voices, don't do voices. Um, You know, if you don't want to have evil characters in your campaign, like me, if you don't want those stories, find a group who wants to have, you know, who doesn't want to have those kind of stories. So, yeah, do your own thing. Don't like try to be somebody else that is a very good piece of advice and i think also goes towards something that i feel strongly about which is like demystifying the role of dungeon master because a lot of people are like think it's a lot more difficult than it is yeah well thank you so much for coming on this has been a real fun chat yeah um is there anything you would like to plug i mean i'm, I'm sure there are several books you would like to plug. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's been really good talking to you guys. Uh, just to let people know, uh, Kwood Publishing has a lot of fifth edition products, um, and you can find us on Twitter and uh, Instagram and Facebook. Uh, just usually look uh, Google World of Mirror or Kwood Publishing. Our newest book is The Monsters of the Underworld, 
which uh, should be coming out uh, this fall. And um, yeah, it's been a pleasure being here. Uh, Mirror is spelled M-Y-R-R. M-Y-R-R, yes. And Kwood is C-A-W-O-O-D. Perfect. Yeah. Cool. Right. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. You can find us on social media at, at DMs of Vancouver and also on Facebook. Uh, you can find this podcast on Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and tell your friends about the show. Word of mouth really helps shows like ours grow and find an audience. And we're also part of the Cave Goblin Network. You can find our shows and many others at cavegoblins.com. And you can support us and the rest of the network at patreon.com slash cavegoblins. Everyone is Jonas is a live-streamed, competitive role-playing podcast hosted by me, Doug Vandalay. Me, Eric Ivanovich. And me, Talia Murdoch. On twitch.tv forward slash cavegoblins every Monday at 7.30 p.m. PST. I was told that once, the earth was shaped like a dish. This was a time before mortals or the law. That time has long since passed and no one tells those stories anymore. All they care to tell these days, over and over again, are the tales of Frost Cricket. Hear them all on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.